All right, we're in Luke chapter 15 together this morning. Um, we're starting a new sermon series today. It's called Who's Your One? It's a question we're going to ask a lot, and we're going to focus on a lot over the course of the next five weeks. And I'm really excited about what lies in store for us, all the possibilities ahead. Here's some simple things I believe you believe. Uh, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who hear and believe. Uh, we believe that God has empowered and called believers in his church to share the gospel because our God is a saving God. And so when we speak the gospel and people hear it, people can believe, people will be saved, and heaven erupts in joy and that's a work that we need to be about. I also believe this. Evangelism is hard. Sharing our faith is awkward and challenging. And there are many obstacles in our way. But my hope is that over the next five weeks, as we dig into the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that we find encouragement and power to be bold witnesses of Jesus Christ, to tell people gladly and joyfully and often of the new life that's found through faith in him. I hope you'll make a commitment to be here with us every one of these five Sundays. We're going to be in this study up to our missions conference uh, towards the end of October. Uh, and the payoff for this could be really, really special. Who knows, but what lives could be changed because we take serious the call of God and the power of God in us to tell people about Jesus Christ and we see them come to faith in him. There could be some beautiful stories that come out of this. That's my prayer. Luke chapter 15 is an amazing story. Uh, it's a story about a group of people that get the mission, the purpose of Jesus wrong. It can be a, a wonky thing if we get purposes wrong. For example, my family and I have a practice in which we gladly misuse something from its intended purpose. That thing is cookie dough. Raw cookie dough in our house is called medicine. And the reason it's called medicine is because when you eat raw cookie dough, it makes you feel better. Every, you've never had raw cookie dough and been like, Bleh. I mean, unless it's not mixed right. But I mean, just pre-made, out of the package, whatever, or you make it yourself, you eat a little dab of raw cookie dough and just happiness fills your belly and a smile hits your face. Now, some party pooper in here is going to say, what about salmonella? Uh, it's worth the risk every time. <laughs> If I get sick, I'll just be so happy in my sickness, I won't even care. So it's, a, a, anytime cookies are being made, someone will ask, hey, you want some medicine? And then they'll, you know, sort of sneakily hand you a, a bite of raw cookie dough and your day's made. That's, a, that's an okay misuse of cookie dough's intended purpose in that setting, but we can imagine a scenario where it could get wildly out of control. Imagine an operating room and the surgeon is calling for the supplies he needs in the moment of your surgery. And he says, scalpel, scalpel, suction, suction, white chocolate macadamia nut. <laughs> and then he smears your appendix with cookie dough. That would be a problem. That's not the right kind of medicine uh, for your sick body. Uh, and the doctor could try and explain it away, but there's no explaining that sort of a misuse of cookie dough. That's not acceptable in any way. Now, it's one thing to get cookie dough wrong. It's one thing to imagine outrageous scenarios. It's another thing to get the purpose of Jesus wrong. Uh, and people in churches do it all the time. Uh, we often will assign to Jesus a purpose or a mission that fits our view of things, and our wants and wishes in our lives, but may not 
align with who Jesus has said he is and what Jesus has said he has come to do. And so it, it looks like many different things. We might think of Jesus just as a problem solver. That's his mission, like the big cosmic butler in the sky who's waiting on me to come to him with a problem and he'll fix it and send me back. So whether it's a sinus infection or I need to lose 10 pounds, uh, Jesus is my problem solver. I put in a few quarters worth of prayer and he gives me back what I need. Some people think of Jesus like a lucky rabbit's foot. If, or if I, if I do good for him, then he'll do good for me. Sort of this Christian karma approach to uh, Christianity. Uh, many churches live with different types of missions separate from the one Christ has given us. Some churches view themselves as keepers of tradition. We've got these stories and these names and these ways, and so we, we've got to preserve what we've done and make sure the traditions don't change. Some churches view themselves as uh, political voices. Other churches view themselves as condemners of culture. A lot of people can gather in the name of Christ and do so for the wrong purpose. And the results are catastrophic. The church that doesn't love the lost is always grotesque. This is what Christ has called us to do, to be a church that's on mission with him. He saved us to be men and women who live for what he came for and what he's called us to do. If we get the mission of Jesus wrong, there's something seriously problematic in our lives. But if we get the mission of Jesus right and we live in the lane of his call and his power and his encouragement and his work, well, that's when lives are turned upside down and the dead come alive in faith and the world is changed for the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I want to be the kind of Christian that lives for what Jesus lives for. I want my life to be on mission with him and that's the kind of church we're striving to be as well. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, we have an example of people who get the mission of Jesus wrong. But Jesus doesn't leave them in their error. He makes it clear why he came, and then he invites us to unite our lives to him. And so when we study this passage today, we're going to have two questions in mind. The first question is this, what is Jesus' mission? And the second is this, how can I be on mission with him? How can I be a part of what Jesus is doing in our world? We're going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Jesus is right in the middle of his uh, earthly ministry, his public ministry. He is in the region of Galilee. He's been doing miracles and teaching and traveling from village to village. And all the while, stirring up, on the one hand, popularity, and on the other hand, stirring up all kinds of criticism and anger. And you pick up on all of that here in this story. Follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. 
I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So I want to show you in our passage today three aspects of the mission of Christ. What is he about? How can I be a part of that? Three aspects of the mission of Christ from this story. The first aspect of the mission of Christ I want to highlight for you today is this. Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. In a very simple sentence, a very simple definition, this is what Jesus is about. If we believe Jesus is God in the flesh, he's God who came to us, what is the purpose of his coming? This is it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So here in Luke chapter 15, we've got Jesus starting off with this conflict between himself and some Pharisees and some scribes, some religious power brokers. It's not the first time he's been criticized by this group, not the first run-in he's had with them. If we had started reading this morning at Luke chapter 1, it would not be long before we got to a place where Jesus faces intense criticism because of the way he carries out his ministry. He indeed eats with tax collectors and sinners. He indeed welcomes them to be around him. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is sitting at the table of Levi the tax collector, eating Levi's food with Levi's friends who also are other tax collectors and notorious sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes, religious power brokers, take Jesus to task for it. They think Jesus is wildly out of place in surrounding himself with these types of people. What is their beef with Jesus? Well, uh, there's the 30,000-foot view, and then there's a narrow view here in our passage. The 30,000-foot view is this. They just outright reject everything that Jesus says about who he is and what he's about. Uh, because of Jesus' work and his teaching, his miracles, word has begun to spread. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting on. But they reject any idea that Jesus could be the Messiah, God's anointed one. Because in their mind, the Messiah is going to be this type of person. He's going to be a military leader. He will be a political leader. And he will be a religious leader. All these offices are going to be wrapped up in this one person. And that one Messiah will come and amass an army, kick Roman tail, and reestablish Israel to a place of worldly prominence once again. And Jesus isn't that kind of person. He's an impoverished peasant from Nazareth a nothing town in the middle of nowhere, and he's from a nothing family with no pedigree of his own, or so it would seem. So just from the very beginning, they reject him, his teachings, everything about him. Even his miracles they explain away as being the works of the devil. Well, in this particular context, they come with a really specific criticism as well. Verses 1 and 2, they complain he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus has proximity to tax collectors and sinners. And you know that tax collectors were just reviled in this culture. Tax collectors are Jewish men who take money out of Jewish pockets and put that money into Roman coffers. 
They're traitors against their own people. They make their living by charging above what's needed for Rome to meet the Roman quota. So they, they, they're thieves. They're, they're not honorable men. They are scoundrels through and through. The, their hatred is well-deserved. Other sinners mentioned here, it's just sort of this general categorical term that describes people who are ceremonially impure because of the way they live their life, the sin they engage in, the gross things they do. They're not even permitted to worship. They're too filthy to be a part of the worshiping community. And so in the mind of Pharisees and and scribes, if Jesus is a faithful Jew, if he really is a man of God, then he won't welcome them to the table. When you welcome them and eat with them, you're treating them like family. Now, you might say, the same criticism could be made of me. Every Thanksgiving, I eat with notorious sinners. Maybe that's just me and my family. I don't know. But the problem here is there are religious implications in the Jewish mind. That when you get yourself in close proximity, you will take on the sin and the impurity of the people around you. Well, Jesus responds to their grumbling with three parables. In Luke chapter 15, we've only read two, studying two this morning, but he gives them a parable of the lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. I would encourage you to take time this week to spend, uh, to spend time studying the parable of the lost son again. It's amazing to me the way Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the scribes. He doesn't respond with venom. He doesn't respond with anger in this moment. He responds with grace. He tells them stories that might help them identify themselves as sinners like all of these in need of salvation from this one in front of them. It's it's beautiful grace and compassion on the part of Jesus. So he starts by telling them these two stories, these two parables. And the two parables mirror each other almost perfectly. There's little differences in details, but if you were to put them side by side, they break down into different segments that perfectly parallel each other. And so we start with a shepherd who's lost a sheep, and then we have a woman who's lost a coin. The shepherd goes on a search. The woman goes on a search. The shepherd finds the sheep. The woman finds the coin. The shepherd calls his friends to celebrate. I lost my sheep, but I found it. And then the woman calls her friends to celebrate. I lost my coin, but I found it. And then they celebrate together. And then at the end of each parable, Jesus draws a connection between the celebration for what was found to the rejoicing in heaven that happens when even one person repents, turns to Jesus Christ in faith. So here's some questions we'd want to ask about this parable. First of all, uh, who represents Jesus in these two parables? That's not too hard of a question to answer. In the first parable, Jesus is the shepherd who's looking for the lost sheep. In the second parable, Jesus is the woman who's looking for the lost coin. He is the shepherd. He is the woman. Both the shepherd and the woman are seekers, and so is Jesus. The term seeker is familiar, especially in Protestant churches. It's a term that's been used for the last few decades to describe those who are outside the faith, but whom we might categorize as seeking God. 
And so there's been a lot of work, a lot of teaching, a lot of books written, a lot of conferences held about how to be a, a seeker-sensitive church, meaning we want to make it easy for those who are outside to come in. And my concern this morning is not to discuss the merits of that one way or the other. Whether you like it or not, our church is in many ways a seeker-sensitive church according to that definition. And as much as we open our arms and welcome all those to come in and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and experience the, the beauties of Christian fellowship and to see the church at worship together, uh, there's a lot of ways in which we're a seeker-sensitive church. But I'm not concerned about that. What I'm struck by is the fact that in these stories, Jesus is the seeker. And that turns the definition of being a seeker-sensitive church on its head. If we're a seeker-sensitive church in this way, then our ears are tuned to Jesus. Our feet are tuned to Jesus. We live for and do what Christ does and has called us to do. He is the great seeker. He always takes the initiative in our salvation. He's always the first mover in these things. Yes, when we hear his call, we must turn from our sin and say yes to Christ in faith. But he's the one who goes out looking for those who are lost. So who's Jesus in the parables? He is the shepherd. He is the woman seeking those who are lost. Who are we in the parables? Again, that one may not be so hard either. At some point in our lives, all of us in this room, we are a lost sheep. We are a lost coin. I don't see differences between the sheep and the coin. That means you've got to pick one camp. I'm camp sheep. I'm camp coin. That's not, we're just lost. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, every single one of us are lost. And we're a lot like that sheep. We've wandered from the flock. We've gone off on our own. We're not looking for the shepherd. The shepherd's looking for us. We're not making it easier for the shepherd to find us. We continue to wander in our lostness. But the shepherd is persistent, and he loves that lamb, and he won't stop until he finds it. We're like the coin in that we have no power to make ourselves known in and of ourselves. The coin's an inanimate object. It's just laying somewhere on a floor under something tough to find. But the woman won't stop until she finds it. Turns her house upside down until she finds what's lost. We're just there. That's all there is for us to do, but just to lay there and to wait. We're dead in our sin. Here's a question. Jesus has a... a, a, a really different audience around him. He has tax collectors and sinners around him. Who in the parables are the tax collectors and the sinners? Well, they're also the sheep and the coin, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Who are the Pharisees? The stories Jesus tells, who represents the Pharisees? Are the Pharisees the 99 who don't need to repent? No. Jesus doesn't tell these parables to affirm the religious power brokers in their self-righteousness. He tells them these stories so that they would identify with the lost. Apart from Christ, they are the lost sheep, the lost coin. He's not saying you've done so well, now you've got to get on board with what I'm doing. He's saying you're lost. You reject me, you, you are the sheep that wanders. You're the coin that's dead and powerless. Your life is found here. I'm the shepherd that's come to seek. So in the tax collectors, we have a representation of lost, irreligious people. And in the Pharisees, 
we have lost religious people. And I wonder if either of those describe your life today. You could be like these tax collectors and sinners, lost and irreligious, angry at God if he even exists. You're just loaded with questions and doubt and venom. You define God according to every unjust and hurtful thing that's happened in your life. Or you just, you just live for your flesh. Just, I'm just in it for me. This candle's only going to burn for so long, and so I want it to burn bright while I can. And whatever appetite, whatever thing I want, I just do. And the way you've lived your life and the choices you've made may have alienated people around you, may have made huge mistakes, may have hurt a lot of people. But Jesus is seeking you. And he says, I will do whatever it takes for that woman to be in my family. You might be the religious lost person. You have a, a rich religious pedigree. You can, you've memorized things. You can recite things. You know the Bible to some degree. You, you know the stand-up, sit-down. You've got a history of all kinds of religious deeds. But in all of that, you've missed Jesus the great question for our souls is not how religious are you, it's what do you do with Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Have you trusted in him to rescue you from your sin and to save you? Or are you relying on your self-righteousness? Look at the deeds I've done. I'm better than these people. They're the worst. I'm the best. You're lost and you're religious. And Jesus says this to you, I will do whatever it takes for that man to be in my family. Who are you this morning? Lost, irreligious, lost, religious. My story is a mixture of both. I've been both of those at different times in my life. And at the point that I met Jesus or that Jesus found me, uh, I was a teenage boy and I was a blend of irreligion and religion. I was just a boy, but I... I had heard the gospel from time to time. I, I grew up in and around a church a little bit. But at that point in my life, this particular point in my life, uh, I was angry at God because of things that had happened to me, things my family had experienced. But I remember vividly this one particular night when I heard the gospel, and it was like the first time I had ever heard the story of my sin and Christ's love and the necessity of his sacrifice and what that meant for me. And even as a teenage boy, I was wrecked by what I learned that night. My tears were really complicated on that night. I cried one because I was grieved by my sin. I realized uh, that in my life, I had only done things to solidify my damnation. I had this knowledge of God that I kept at a distance. I relied on this sort of self-righteousness. And then I mixed that with some venom and vitriol towards God because of unjustness towards me. And I knew, I knew what my sin deserved. But these tears were complicated. On the one hand, I cried to grieve for my sin. And then I cried at the incredible compassion of Jesus Christ to save sinners, to pursue, to seek to find, to call, to rescue. I mean, what kind of God is that? 
the God I've rebelled against, the God I hated in my heart, the God I blamed, but the God who's holy, holy, holy. And the God who loves runners. What an incredible God he is. So my life was turned upside down on that night. When Jesus found me and I said yes to him, I repented from my sin and I turned to him. Do you know how precious you are to Jesus Christ? Your life is loaded with mistakes and failures and he has come for you. And he will not miss you. And over and over again, he's pursued you with the gospel and he's called you to him. Because he's not okay leaving you lost. He's not okay saying, I I affirm you in your brokenness, in your mess, in all your horrible appetites. He comes and says, I'm going to throw you on my shoulders. I'm taking you home. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you been found by Jesus? When we look at this story, that's the first call. It's an invitation to us to find ourselves in the lostness and then to be found by the great seeker of our souls. Say yes to him. At the end of our service today, as we always do, we're going to have some men and women standing in this corner. We call them the prayer team. And if today is your day to be found by Christ, I don't want you to leave this room before you talk to someone from that prayer team. They can encourage you. They can uh, help you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Or you can grab me or any one of the pastors or the friend that you came with today. And today, you can say yes to the one who has called and seeks you and finds you. The whole Bible is filled with these pictures of God being a seeker and saving his lost sheep. In Psalm 23, the Lord's our shepherd whose goodness and mercy pursues us all the days of our lives. In Isaiah 40, we're told that God is like a shepherd who gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks on the lost people around him with compassion because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Have you been found by Christ? Don't go another minute, another day without saying yes to his call. The first thing we need to know about the mission of Jesus is what it is. It is to seek and save the lost. Let me give you a second aspect of the mission of Christ that we've got to be clear on. Jesus' mission makes heaven rejoice. What is it in its content? Seek and save the lost. What is it in its result? The mission of Jesus makes heaven rejoice. In each parable, the seeker seeks and the lost are found. And then when the shepherd finds his lost sheep, he calls his friends to celebrate. And when the woman finds her lost coin, she calls her friends to celebrate. The return of the lost or the finding of the lost is marked by outsized celebration. Just think, have you ever in your life lost your keys, and then found them and called your friends and said, we're partying tonight. It's going down to my house. I lost my keys, but I found them. Man, uh, I have not. But in this instance, oh, they, they're not going to hold back. They're going to share the good news. These things were lost. I found them. And so the celebration begins. Jesus uses this picture to describe 
what the response is like in heaven when the lost are found. So in verse 7, he says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And then in verse 10, he says, I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. I love these images in the Bible of what, what things are like in God's eternal heavenly kingdom. I just, I feel like human language is inadequate to describe glory and magnitude and light and volume. I just, I wonder, I don't doubt that there really is a pearly gate, but I just wonder, is, I mean, how, how, would, how would you use those words to describe it? Is it really made of pearls, or is it just someone looked at it and said, what would you call that? I don't know, kind of a pearly gate. All right, boom, 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 pearly gate it is. What do you call these streets? Ah, streets of gold? Yeah. What's a tree of life? I don't know, but that's what one must look like, tree of life. There it is. I'm not doubting the veracity of Scripture. I'm just saying I don't know how we put into English things that are eternal and infinite. It's hard. How you put it in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or whatever. So here we have this beautiful picture of praise and glory happening in God's heavenly kingdom when one sinner repents and turns. Now, I've heard it preached many times, and so I myself picked up on this habit in years past of using this passage in this way. I would tell people, um, when you give your life to Christ, I don't know how it happens, but in some way, your name floats up in front of the heavenly hosts, and boom, the choir erupts, and, and people start going crazy in heaven because you've given your life to Christ. Now, I think there's truth in that, but I'm changing my tune. Because I've asked myself, what is it that causes heaven to erupt in joy and praise? What is it? And in Revelation chapter 5, we have a picture of what worship in heaven looks like. And I just want you to listen as I read the words to heaven's song. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And the Apostle John continues, he says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So don't miss this. Heaven's rejoicing is not for the lamb that was found, but the lamb who was slain. The lost lamb turns to Jesus Christ, hears his call, and turns to Christ in faith. And heaven erupts in praise and glory of Jesus Christ because he has accomplished what he came to do. His death and resurrection is for the salvation of souls. And for that purpose, he is to be given praise and glory and worth for all times. So one sinner repents, heaven rejoices, Christ is praised because he's accomplished what he has come to do. I think that picture of the joy of heaven can be a really powerful motivator for us when we think about being on mission with Jesus. 
When I think about sharing my faith, being a tool Jesus uses to seek and save the lost, when I think of sharing my faith with people, my number one obstacle is fear. Every time it's fear. And my fear monster is really creative. So it'll put in front of me all these reasons to pull back, to not tell people about Jesus or engage in the conversation. All kinds of excuses flood my mind. Maybe I might upset the other person or I I might hurt our relationship or I might come across as judgy or how cliche, you're a pastor and now you're talking about Jesus. You don't want to feed that cliche. Or or maybe my head will explode or maybe they'll stab me with a trident or a meteorite will land on my face. Who knows, but the fears just flood, the excuses pour in, my courage wanes, and I step back. But what if in place of fear, I let the joy of heaven take the lead? What if I kept in front of me this image that when Christ seeks and saves, heaven erupts in joy and praise of him? What if that led me instead of fear? I think joy is a fear killer. I think joy is a courage giver. I think joy is a risk taker. Joy pushes us forward to do great things for the praise of Jesus Christ. That kind of joy can make us storytellers, remove fear altogether, and give us the strength and the power to talk about Christ. We participate in heaven's praises. Can you imagine you share your faith with someone else? You tell another friend about Jesus Christ and they turn to him in faith and you're the reason heaven erupts and praises Jesus Christ for his mission accomplished in that one life. You strike up the choir. It's a really special, amazing thing to think about. The fulfillment of Christ's mission causes heaven to erupt in joy. He's seeking and saving the lost. Heaven rejoices as a result. Third and finally, Jesus' mission is continued by his church. That mission continues in and through his church today. It happens through individual lives. It happens through our corporate lives together. Now, anytime we study Luke chapter 15, it's important that we remember who the target audience is. Even if you just parachute into the prodigal son, you've got to start your reading at verse 1 so that you know who Jesus is surrounded by and who he's talking to. The prodigal son is, is a, a story given to Pharisees and scribes first and foremost. And so are these other two parables, the lost coin and the lost uh, sheep. So Jesus is talking here to Pharisees, and in, this, in these parables, there is both an invitation and a criticism. The invitation we've already talked about, he's telling them, you are the lost sheep, you are the lost coin, I'm the seeker, I've come to find you. Here's the criticism. The criticism is, you, religious power brokers, have been entrusted with this platform, and you have used it to destroy people rather than save people. You have used it to force people out rather than bring people in to a covenant relationship with God. You have this responsibility. You have forsaken it. But what Jesus calls is for his church to follow him in his mission to seek and save the lost. What does this parable or these parables tell us about the value 
of non-believers to Jesus. Well, in the first parable, the shepherd finds value in the one sheep over the 99. I've got 99, one's missing. You guys stay here, I'm taking off. And I'll come back with my sheep. It's not enough for the shepherd to come home at night with most of the sheep he left with in the morning. He wants to come back with all the sheep he left with in the morning. So that's how valuable that one is. I'm going to leave the 99 behind and I'm going to go after that one. I'm not stopping until I find it. And how valuable is the coin to the woman? Well, comparatively speaking, that coin is more valuable than the sheep. The sheep is one of 99. The coin is one of 10. And this type of coin represents a day's wages. It's a big monetary deal. And so she values the coin supremely. I'm going to stop everything. I'm going to turn on a lamp. I'm going to turn this house upside down until I find this thing that's lost. She doesn't stop until she finds it. So you remember the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus? He welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know what's wrong with that criticism? It's too soft. It doesn't go far enough. He doesn't just welcome them and eat with them. He pursues them. He goes after them. He doesn't stop until he finds them. Sinners of every kind, lost people of every stripe, Jesus doesn't just dine with them. He makes them his family. He pays for their sin. He won't just share a meal. He will shed his blood in order to bring them into his kingdom. So it raises some important questions for the church. Do we value non-believers the way Jesus does? Do we grieve their lostness? Do we commit to search for them single-mindedly with the gospel? Sometimes in certain theological circles, there's an indifference to the lost. God is the sovereign one, and he's orchestrated all things, and he will save whom he will save, and, and those he doesn't save are just those who don't persevere, and, and that's just kind of it. And it's just said matter-of-factly and smugly, You can't be a follower of Jesus Christ and not grieve the lost. Not look at our world with brokenness. At the same time, the hope of what's possible through the gospel shared with our neighbors. I saw a great example of this uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. A great example of what it means to seek someone, to place value on them and to go after them with the gospel, so to speak. I'm, I called a friend and invited him to dinner. And he said, man, I'd love to, but uh, we already have dinner plans. Uh, a friend is coming over to the house and uh, we've been sharing the gospel with this friend for a long time. And so we, we want to continue this. Uh, and so I, I asked my friend, I said, remind me again. I, I think I remember this story. Tell me again. He said, yeah, I've known this guy for years Uh, He knew me before I was a believer, and uh, we've maintained a friendship these many years. We continue to share the gospel with him, but everything that can be said has been said. At this point, we just hope he continues to ask questions, and we're hopeful that one day he will bow a knee. So until that day, they have him over to dinner, and they love him, and they hug him, and this is a man that lives a hard life. They don't stop until he's found. No, look, I don't know if you know this. I'm kind of a big deal. I am the pastor of South Shore Baptist Church. But do you know who's a more important dinner guest than me? That guy. Every time it's that guy. We join Christ in his mission by seeking the lost, giving them the gospel, pointing them to Christ 
that they might be saved and Christ might be praised. The mission of Jesus continues through his church. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Brother, sister, Christian, who's your one? Who's your one? Who's the one whom you are praying for and you are seeking with the gospel? Who's the one who is in your sights for kindness and care and compassion and love and meals and Jesus? Who's your one? For the next five weeks, we're going to set our hearts and our eyes on this task of seeking one person in our lives. When we think about evangelism, it it looks like a few different things. On the one regard, it's right that we would just be poised for any sort of random interaction, any sort of random conversation that pops up in our lives. But we should also be practitioners of intentional, targeted evangelism. Who's your one? Who's the one you are intentionally praying for and seeking with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So for these next five weeks, we're going to set our hearts to this task. Now I want to give you a challenge with three parts. Uh, So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your bookmark that was in your bulletin this morning. And I'm going to ask you to make three commitments. And this bookmark is a tool that can help us with these commitments. Here's the three commitments I, I want you to make as you participate in this emphasis with us. Commitment number one is this. I want you to name your one. Who is the person in your life you have a relationship with that you will pray for and you will target with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who's your one? Now, some of you may say, I got lots of ones. I got tens. I got fifties. And that's okay. The rules are not stringent here. But let's make sure we have at least one who will be the focus of prayer and a gospel conversation in the weeks ahead. Who's your one? And what you could do is on your bookmark, there's this perforated tab on the end. You can write the name of that one, your one, here. And if you want, you can tear this perforated tab off with the name of your one, and then you can put this someplace to keep them in front of you. Tape it to your steering wheel. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it on the fridge. Uh, who knows what? But put it someplace that it might be a good reminder. And so you're going to name your one. I want to ask you to be prayerful, to be thoughtful about it. Who's the one you're going to target? Now, so what happens if I, if I name one, I pray for that one, I share the gospel, they come to faith in Christ, we will rejoice, heaven will rejoice, and then guess what? You get to pick up again with a new one. Who's your one? I want you to think prayerfully and carefully about this. I want you to name someone. The second commitment I want to ask you to make is I want you to pray for 30 consecutive days for this one. The power of evangelism is in our praying before it's in our speaking. When we pray, we're moving heaven's resources to earth for these tasks that glorify God. And your bookmark has some prayer prompts for you. The Bible verses that are on here are not for devotions or Bible study. They're for praying. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn day one tomorrow to John 14, 6. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to use that to inform my prayer for my one. If you want more, uh, a more robust approach to this uh, prayer calendar, uh, you'll find on the resource table that Steve will tell you about in a little bit, you'll find an expanded prayer journal that goes along the lines of these verses. But your bookmark is a prompt for you to pray. 
Third commitment to make is I want you to commit to, make a, to have a gospel conversation with this person. That may mean you've got to take the initiative. Instead of just waiting for that moment, and it may happen, they just call you up out of the blue and say, tell me about Jesus. You may have to create the moment, have spark the conversation. What does it mean to have a gospel conversation? What does that look like? It can look like a lot of different things. Your conversation about Christ or about faith matters might look different depending on where that person is in their life. They might be near to the kingdom of God. They might be far from the kingdom of God. But the one common denominator in these conversations will be we're going to point them to Jesus Christ. And I trust that God the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom to know what words need to be said and how the conversation needs to look. You don't need a script from Cody. You've got something better in you. You've got God the Holy Spirit giving you guidance and power and words to speak in that moment. But this is your commitment. I've got one name. I'm going to pray for 30 days and I want to have a gospel conversation with them. If God and His power sees fit and gives us a harvest of souls, we will praise Him and glorify Him. And that's what we strive towards. That's what we pray towards. But our goal in this instance is obedience. To pray and to speak and let the gospel do its work in God's appointed time. Will you make this commitment with me? Will you commit to pray for one and to share the gospel with them in the next five weeks? Will you take serious this challenge and let's see what God would do in us to seek and save the lost, to give heaven a reason to rejoice again for us to be a church that's on mission with Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? I want you to take a moment just in quiet prayer and contemplation, and I want you to think about who your one is. You don't have to name that person in this moment. You may want to go home and pray and think about it some more. You might already know, who is that one? Would you go ahead and take a moment now in the quietness of this room and lift that name to Jesus Christ? Father, the names we've mentioned are names you know. (laughs) There's not one name that you're not intimately acquainted with. We trust you, the sovereign God. You've put them on our heart for a purpose. Let us be your tools, your vessels in seeking and saving those whom you love and those whom you are calling to you. Lord, this is a big task, but let the joy, the praise, the rejoicing of heaven motivate us and push us forward as we pray and as we trust the power of the gospel to do what you've said it will do, to do what it has done even in our own lives. And Lord, I'm very aware that there may be someone in here that they need to write their own name in that blank. And they need to set themselves on a journey to seek you out, to ask questions, to find answers in your word. Give that friend the courage and the boldness 
to look to you and to turn to you, to be found in you. Father, thank you for the work you have given us to do. Thank you for this glorious task. I know that praise awaits you anytime your church moves in obedience. Lord God, use us to glorify your name, to strike up the heavenly choirs so that praise and glory would be to the one who seeks and finds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.